Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on the donate button to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. In March 1989, 21-year-old pre-med student Mark Kilroy was grabbed off the streets in Matamoros, Mexico, just south of the Texas border. According to a report by Guy Garcia in Rolling Stone, Kilroy was on spring break with his friends at South Padre Island and had gone into Matamoros for the day to visit Calle Alvaro Obregón, a street of bars and clubs frequented by spring breakers. It was his second night in Matamoros, and his friends had parked across the bridge in Brownsville, the American side of the border town. Kilroy spent the night flirting with the third-place winner of a tanning contest before leaving with his friends to go back across the bridge in the early hours of the morning. His friend ran ahead to pee behind a tree in a small park and noticed as he left that a Mexican man was motioning at Kilroy. He figured it must be someone Kilroy knew. The man asked Kilroy, haven't I seen you before? And that was the last anyone heard from him. Kilroy's disappearance would lead to the discovery of a genuine black magic murder cult in Matamoros. This, in turn, would link back to two men who collectively claimed to be responsible for the murder of over 200 people. Yeah, quite a story, huh? So today on Occult Confessions, we are talking about satanic murder cults. Uh, the satanic murder cults who spurred on the satanic panic of the 1980s and 1990s, at least in part. The satanic panic was a complex event involving lots and lots of different working parts, which it will take us, I think, several years to get through. Uh, but today we're going to, you know, begin on that journey. Uh, well, actually, we're going to continue on that journey because this is the second part of our series on the impact of black magic on pop culture, particularly in terms of Satanism. If you haven't listened to our last episode on the panic, I'd suggest doing that before following us on this particular journey. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I'm the supreme hierophant of our secret order. I'm joined, as usual, by our grandmaster, Olivia Literal. Hello. And our sister of the 84th degree, Savannah Verrett. Hello. Uh, this... Uh, so, so you guys ready for this? I'm always ready for this topic. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. You wake up <laughs> yep. ready to do this every yep. day. You're just hoping I'm going to call and say, can we talk about murder cults? I mean, it happens more often than not, I feel like. <laughs> that that yeah. I do call and want to talk about murder yeah. cults? <laughs> yeah, I feel like, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's fair, yeah. It happens reasonable not so often or that text I would, you know maybe you wouldn't you know. want to wake up every day though and expect it that's pretty like an awful. alarm clock <laughs> you're, you're my alarm i don't i don't request it that often <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> all right let's let's pledge it out we, we the, members the members of, of the, the secret order, order of alchemical actors, actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, let's do a little business before we get down to the uh, episode today. Uh, we got to give Brandon Walls, our voice actor, regular contributor on the voice side of things, we got to give him his occulty name. Oh. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess full disclosure, we met in advance, discussed this, uh, and uh, we, we liked Silver Tongued Shadow. How do you guys feel about that? Yes. That's, yes. <laughs> Shadow of the Silver Tongue. Okay, so it is done. I, I don't know what else to say. 
Bam. Congrats. Yeah. Congrats. Yes. Brand. Congratulations, Brandon. <laughs> I look forward to hearing your voice later in the episode. Um, and uh, we also talked about uh, this crew, uh, folks present, Savannah and, and Olivia discussed with me, uh, naming what, what we're going to call everybody who listens to the show, because everyone's got uh, these cutesy names for people, for their yeah. listeners. You know what I mean? It's kind of obnoxious. So we want to keep this nice and simple. This is a cult confession, so we're just going to call you our confessors. Yeah. That's cutesy. I like it. It's it is. Cutesy. It is, but like, <laughs> cutesy. it is a little, you know. Confessor, it's also kind of dark, about, but yeah, it's, a, it's like a priest or something as your confessor. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, so I'm sorry, I don't do church, so <laughs> confessing I don't to do them. church. <laughs> this is my religion. Oh shit! This podcast. Wow. <laughs> that's nice. that's a lot of. <laughs> you a just lot got of weight points to carry. for that. Yeah. <laughs> carry that burden. Okay. Uh, we want to welcome some new patrons. We have Brian, also Ian, and Gooly Go Lightly. Gooly go lightly. What a great name. A little com- little spooky uh, Audrey Hepburn action there. Uh, we have Alfred, also Vera, and finally Tony. Welcome. We have a review from a sentient ball of oats and anxiety. Oh, wow. <laughs> I feel privileged. Oats appreciates that we cover a multitude of cultural perspectives, uh, and we'll be doing some of that today, as a matter of fact. Uh, and finally, our friend Emery uh, told us through the uh, website, you can go on the website, send us a message. Uh, 666 is thought by some scholars to be gematria. This is referencing our, our current conversation about Satanism. Uh, but it doesn't signify Julius Caesar, which we, we wondered about, I think, on the last episode. It signifies Nero, who shortly after his death, uh, rumors spread throughout the empire that Nero would rise from the dead. Uh, the scholars that hold to the Gematria explanation of 666 believe that John of Patmos, the author of Revelation, saw this potential resurrection as a demonic parody of Christ's own, uh, which he says is kind of metal, to be honest. It is yeah. kind of metal. Thanks yeah. for that. Mm-hmm. All right, let's close up that business meeting and get on with the episode. You ready? Business adjourned. Yes. <laughs> business adjourned. <laughs> On the 11th of April, Elio Hernandez Rivera, uh, and I did take Spanish in high school before we do all this. <laughs> oh, that I was a, how long ago? Uh, it's, I don't want to say, but okay. uh, <laughs> but my graduate school language was French, so I, I tested in French as a graduate student. So it's been a while since I've, I've uh, had Spanish. So I'm going to do my best with these pronunciations. As usual, we botch them, but we sound very confident as we do them. Elio Hernandez Rivera was busted at a routine drug blockade for possession of marijuana. Elio was, at the time, the leader of the Hernandez Gang, a multi-generational drug-smuggling family, and also a criminal justice student at Texas Southmost College in Brownsville on the <laughs> Texas side of Matamoros. Yes. That's alarming. Oh, that's a little. Awesome. <laughs> okay. That's so cool. He told them uh, that his family ran a small ranch, the Santa Elena, 20 miles away, where the Federales discovered 75 pounds, uh, for our European listeners, 30 kilos of marijuana. Mm. It's not just European, but like everyone other than like Americans and British people, right? (laughs) We're the only ones who use the customary system. Yeah, we suck. (laughs) (laughs) The cops also discovered a strange little shed that shocked and chilled them when they first opened it up. Reporting for the New York Times, Peter Applebaum described the scene. Honey, did you read the paper this morning? Huh? The Times. Did I read the paper? 
Some kind of satanic cult or something down in Texas. I haven't read it. Listen to this. Rancho Santa Elena is at the end of a bumpy, mile-long dirt road on a flat, empty terrain dotted by farms, ranches, and an occasional hovel. A what? A hovel. A shack. You know, like your woodshed. There's a cult working out of our woodshed? Just listen. The 14 by 24 shack where the killings allegedly took place stood like a ghoulish still life today, unguarded by police officers. On the concrete floor were scattered dozens of cigars and chili peppers, boxes of altar candles and empty bottles of cheap Mexican tequila. Mm, that's the best kind. By the front door was a large cauldron in which a horseshoe, turtle, goat's feet, and other animal remains floated in a dank soup like large sticks protruding from it. The police said human blood and body parts were also mixed into it and boiled as part of the ritual killing. Before the investigation could proceed, the Federales Comandante Juan Benitez Ayala asked that a curandera, or white magician, uh, be called to help neutralize the black magic. The police showed a ranch caretaker the photo of Mark Kilroy, who we talked about at the beginning of the episode. He'd been missing for several weeks at that point, and the caretaker said that he had seen the boy at Santa Elena Ranch. So they began to dig around the shed, and they started to turn up human remains. An article in Texas Monthly uh, by Gary Cartwright called The Work of the Devil, published in June, uh, which will be on our website on our references page, was able to fill in more details of the ritual by which Kilroy had met his unfortunate end. Hey, honey, do you see this here in the Texas Monthly? I didn't even know we subscribed to the Texas Monthly. More about them satanic murderers. We live in Baltimore. It says first... The high priest offered up the sacrifice, cutting the victim's throat, or, or in Gilroy's case, taking off the top of his head with a machete. Kilroy, that college boy from the top of the episode? The victims were usually killed first, then mutilated, though not always. Then the brains, hearts, lungs, and testicles were boiled in the iron kettle, and the resulting brew was passed among the members so they could drink and be sanctified. Uh, that's disgusting. What else did it say? After that, laymen of the cult buried the remains in and around the corral behind the shed. So Kilroy's body was one of several found in shallow graves around the shed with his heart ripped out uh, and ears, eyes, and testicles removed. The oh, police would, God. Yeah. The police would go on to find 15 bodies on the ranch. At first, the gang sacrificed rival gang members and cops who had welched on bribed agreements with Hernandez Rivera. Um, and Hernandez Rivera served as one of the executioner priests, so he was frequently doing the killing himself. Wait, Her- did you say cops like that were working with them? Is Basically, that what you're saying? yeah. Oh, they were okay. on the payroll. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and then, you know, things went, you know, maybe right. they asked for too much money or whatever, and they yeah. ended up killing them. Hernandez Rivera was a particularly zealous priest for this satanic cult drug smuggling murder crew in one case he cut the heart from his victim while the victim was still alive <gasps> oh my oh. god jeez that's some freaking what's it called who did Aztec? that aztecs yeah. yeah it's pretty aztec uh well we're in the right country oh that's wrong right time, yeah. right yeah, country yeah, yeah, wrong time yeah. but when a sacrifice went awry 
Uh, a cop pulled his gun and had to be shot before the ceremony could begin. So this was an incident that happened where this cop pulled this gun. They shot him before they could do the whole ritual. Um, Hernandez Rivera wasn't satisfied with that kill. And they ended up grabbing a 14-year-old boy who was looking for his lost goat off the street, <gasps> covered his head with a bag. And then after they had killed the boy, Hernandez Rivera realized that he had accidentally murdered his own nephew. What? Oh, wow. What? what? Oh, yeah. how do you just... How do you well, not... they put a bag over his head. He had a bag on his head. That's still so insane. Abduct him in the dark, bring him back, bag on his head, execute him, and then, oh, killed a relative. When, I mean, any 14-year-old boy. What were they doing all boy. these rituals for? Sacrifices? For, like... Uh, I'm glad you asked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, like, why? What's the point? I'm assuming to, like, help their their trade, right? So Hernandez Rivera said that the 15 people they'd killed were part of a protection ritual to keep the drug smugglers undetected by the police. So they believed that the rituals made them impervious to bullets, and Hernandez Rivera even tempted the police to shoot him in jail, bragging that the bullets would just bounce off of him. Okay, that's a choice. Yeah. The whole reason he was captured by the blockade was his belief that they would not be able to bust him because of the magic he performed at the ranch. U.S. Customs agent Oren Neck, quoted in the New York Times, described the kidnappers as being completely shameless. He said, they didn't demonstrate any remorse at all. They were laughing and giggling. They didn't seem to have any reason to be ashamed. It was unbelievable. Of the four who were arrested, all uh, either 22 or 23 years old, that's about how old they were, so slightly younger than you guys, uh, they were both Mexican and U.S. citizens, these four, uh, according to reports, two were wearing necklaces made out of human vertebrae. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. These are pretty hardcore folks. Hardcore human sacrificers. A wire had actually been attached to Kilroy's spinal column, which was buried with the rest of his body underground so that his vertebrae could be pulled out one by one as his body decomposed to make another necklace. Just horrible. But none of these four who were arrested were responsible for actually murdering Kilroy. They said his head had been hacked with a machete by a man man they called El Padrino, uh, which means the godfather. Oh. El Padrino was the ripe old age of 26. His name was Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. El Padrino was the sorcerer or black magician of the group. So whereas Hernandez Rivera was the leader of the group, this guy, El Padrino, he was like their, their shaman. Evil shaman. Black magic shaman. Murder shaman. I don't know how else to qualify this. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> shaman is generally a cool, pretty chill dude. Maybe yeah. not necessarily chill, but a cool dude. In this case, bad shaman. Oh, okay. Constanzo was descended from a maternal line of Santeras, practitioners of the Afro-Caribbean religion of Santeria. He had grown up in a Cuban neighborhood near Miami where his mother lived and practiced Santeria. Santeria, like voodoo, is a blend of African and Catholic religion, and it features the invocation of gods or orishas through trance performance. Constanzo lived in Mexico City for several years, where he frequented the Zona Rosa, the city's gay district. He offered to serve as high priest for the Hernandez gang, providing protection and black magic means to wealth beyond their wildest dreams. So he's sort of like their guru now. Well, how did he um, find these people? Like, did he just stumble upon them? Or 
Okay, so Texas Monthly actually has three theories for you, Savannah. The first is that our guru uh, already had connections to other drug lords and had linked up with the Hernandez gang through them. Hmm, okay. So he was already in the in the drug mix. The second theory is that he had met a member of the gang named El Duby in Mexico City. And El Duby had made the introduction. It's hard to take El Duby seriously, but yeah, I'm sure he's a dangerous guy. I wasn't going to say it, but it's there. Everyone it's a, knows yeah. it's there. It's pretty silly. Um, but he's probably murdering people and stuff, so he's a serious man with a, a very unserious name. Yeah. The third theory was that Elio Hernandez's girlfriend at Texas Southmost, Sarah Aldretti, knew Constanzo because of her practice in Afro-Caribbean occultism. So let's take a moment now for Sarah Aldretti. Just under six feet tall and a student athlete, she was also known as The Witch, with a capital Witch. Whoa. Aldretti was a model physical education student at Texas Southmost, uh, and she led the soccer team's booster club. She'd been inspired by the 1987 horror movie The Believers, starring Martin Sheen, about a cult who performed human sacrifice to, I guess, get involved in all this action with the uh, Matamoros folks. Mexico had its own version of this plotline in the primetime soap opera El Malefico, or Malefiso, which featured a businessman praying to Satan to maintain his success. So there's a lot of pop culture Satanism percolating at this time period. These guys just happen to be one of the few examples of it becoming a real dangerous um, practice. Sarah Aldretti led a kind of double life as a high-achieving student on the Texas side and a black magic drug trafficker on the other. Can you imagine you're you're going to be a gym teacher and you're in class? It sounds like a weird sitcom. Yeah. The, yeah, the girl right next to you is running the soccer boosters. Yeah, <laughs> but by night, she, it's like that babysitter uh, horror movie. When I know? was a student, I didn't even have enough time to live my normal life. I don't know how she lived yeah. too. Like, what the hell? That's a <laughs> lot of work on both sides. Yeah. Crossing that border and murdering people. She comes <laughs> back to America. She's, I don't even know. What, what, she's like it's like Hannah Montana. She's right. Yeah, a murderous <laughs> Hannah Montana. Yeah, if yeah, if is is Hannah Montana the the pop star? Yes, nobody yeah, so wanted her. Pop star was a murderer. Yeah. Her performance at Texas Southmost was most was so persuasive that it wasn't until after the warrant had been put been put out for her arrest that anyone questioned how the daughter of a retired electrician was able to drive a brand new car with a built-in car phone. I'm going to say this again. So it's a retired electrician. So daddy's not rich. He's a working class guy, which is great, you know, but you're not going to have a brand new car. And mm-hmm. we're talking a car phone. Like this is like Zach Morris days for car phones. People did not have phones. Hot shit back then. Uh, yeah. It's expensive. Expensive you. service. So, but nobody wondered. Everyone was like, oh, of course. It's because she's so good at being a soccer booster. <laughs> She's the just rituals. so smart. The school gives her new cars. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> how it she's works. skimming a little, skimming off the soccer booster candy sales. <laughs> the rituals practiced by both El Padrino and the witch were inspired by the Afro-Caribbean religion of Palo Mayombe, which is a syncretic Afro-Catholic tradition like voodoo of, or Santeria, but with less name recognition. I think some of our listeners may be hearing about Palo Mayombe for the first time right now. I like how it sounds. Pretty fancy. It's a fun... Yeah. That brings us to today's brief history. 
We've taken our research for today's discussion on Paolo Mayambe uh, from the book Sacred Spaces and Religious Traditions in Oriente Cuba, and also an article in Slavery and Abolition, volume 37, number one, by John Thornton. Okay, a brief history of the religion of Paolo Mayombe. The Congolese king Nitsinga'a Nukuwu embraced Catholicism when the Portuguese arrived to exchange hostages with him in 1483, meaning that Paolo Mayombe's Afro-Christian blend really goes back to the Congo's voluntary conversion long before Congolese slaves came to America. They adopted the cult of the saints and created an Africanized Jesus, which appeared on their crucifix. For the most part, in the Congo, Catholicism was not propagated by Catholic missionaries, but rather by Congolese teachers. European priests were generally only used to provide sacraments and were often rejected or even corrected when they tried to teach the Congolese how to be better Catholics. So I love this. So the Africans are telling the Catholics, no, we got this. We got our own version here. Don't mess with us. The Congolese would tell the priests that they were mistaken in their practices and needed to learn from the Congolese the proper way of doing things. All right. The Congolese, isn't that cool? Yeah. They blended their traditions with the relatively new Catholic faith, to them anyway, and they kept their zinkisi, or personal charms, which the priests substituted with saints' medals, but they continued to function in the African traditional way. They used them to perform healing rites, they danced when priests arrived in a village, and they danced to drive away the devil. It was this tradition that the Congolese brought with them over the ocean to Cuba when they worked as slaves or Spanish sugar on Spanish sugar plantations. So this Catholic blend happened actually in Africa. It didn't happen in the States. And when they were sold into slavery and brought over to the United States, they kept this Catholic, Catholic uh, African syncretic blended religion that became Palomayombe. I mean, similarly, voodoo and Santeria, you know, have these kind of origins and and are both blends of Christianity and and African traditional religion. So Cuban Palo Mayombe hails from the Oriente along the east coast of the country, because Santeria is in other parts of the country. That includes Guantanamo and Santiago. These port cities are unique for their association with smuggling, going back to the earliest days of the colony. The area became increasingly isolated when uh, Cuba's capital moved to Havana in 1607 and was dominated by palenques. Palenque is the word for escaped slaves, uh, and they built their own communities in the mountains who colonial authorities tried and failed repeatedly to conquer. So they maintained their sort of independence. In rituals, the practitioners employ a blend of Cuban Creole Congolese language unique to them. The most powerful and efficacious rituals employ remnants of the dead, meaning body parts and organs of dead people to invoke spirits. Starting to sound familiar. Spirits are are muertos, spirits of the dead and ancestor spirits, and also divine spirits, uh, like the loa for voodoo or or orishas of Santeria. As in Santeria and voodoo, these spirits can inhabit the bodies of devotees. Practitioners use cazuelas, similar to the voodoo grigri, Uh, which are containers holding rocks and dirt and pieces of metal, animal or human bones, hair and skin. So they use these containers, these cazuelas, to bring spiritual influence into the material world via the principle of unkisi that we mentioned earlier, or the spiritual power of physical objects. The ungaga, or three-legged cauldron, is a more powerful version of the cazuela. Remember, we heard that there were these weird cauldrons on the Matamoros cult property. So you could use the, the cauldron to make this, uh, the, to function as a kind of enkisi. 
Practitioners believe in a supreme creator, an Nsambe, who endowed each element of creation with different portions of cosmic energy. Rituals begin when the Tata, or priest, writes a cosmogram on the floor, containing information about the community performing the ritual and their relationship to the spirit world. This is a bit like a sigil. The Ngaga, the cauldron, sit at the center of the ritual, carrying powerful objects from the four elements of being and embodying the power itself, so that it doesn't just hold the power, but becomes the power. Participants salute the Ngaga as they enter. Drumming and chanting often follows. The ritual is used to invoke the spirits of the dead, who help to solve problems and predict the future, speaking in symbolic and mythological language that the Tata or priest must translate. So there's some transcommunication, there's some you know, uh, ritual speech that needs to be translated, um, all these sorts of things. The spirits of the dead can do good, but they can also achieve negative or black magic ends with the understanding that the practitioner bears the consequences of any spiritual invocation. If there is to be an animal sacrifice, the animal is brought in by a second tata and the group says a ritual goodbye. Everyone holds their throats as a knife is held to the animal's throat in prayer for a clean cut, and the blood runs in a straight line down the knife's blade into the ungaga, the three-legged cauldron. The universe is continually falling into an imbalance in the Palomayombe tradition, and animal sacrifices used to balance forces that have fallen into disequilibrium. Often, the sacrificed animal is eaten in a feast after the sacrifice with the belief that the sacrificed animal contains special spiritual power. The space for these rituals is adorned with dried blood, also animal skulls, human bones, railroad spikes, chains, and axes. The sensational character of these elements with the Nangaga cauldron in the, at the center of it is all characteristic of the scene uh, that was discovered in the tin shed at Matamoros in 1989. And that's my brief history of the religion of Palo Mayombe. Yay! Woohoo! <laughs> that was spooky. So they might incorporate human bones and things, um, but, but you know, to be fair to Palo Mayombe, they're not trying to murder anybody. The Matamoros cult yeah. is introducing this human murder. It was just animal sacrifice, and you know, they would use you know bones that might be available because somebody died of some other cause or or whatever. Mm. But now the Matamoros cult is taking this to the next level. Yeah, it's a big difference. Oh, yeah. I like how so, they did the, like, goodbye ritual for the animal. Do you think that they did that for the humans? I'm not mm. trying to sound stupid, but, like, I don't know. No, I think <laughs> that's cult. an interesting yeah, yeah. question. Because, like, because that seems like a big thing, like, I don't know, showing, like, a sign of respect to the animal almost. I mean, I don't know if that is why they did it, but, like, I'm wondering if it seems like a big part to do it for the animal. I'm wondering if they would do it for a human, but... I think, you know, we can only guess, right? Yeah. But it seems to me that the Matamoros cult, in their use of Palomayombe, they probably didn't have, you know, full details of how Palomayombe functioned, but they knew enough to be dangerous. Gotcha. Mm. Getting, because it came through Miami, so, like, it's being translated through different sources. They're not, you know, getting going straight to the source. They're not in or the Oriente portion of Cuba. Yeah, Okay. It's a guess, though. I mean, maybe they did go through the ritual with the human. It's creepy. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking, too. It's like it wouldn't be nearly as respectful if you were the human about to be sacrificed. I mean, but they weren't. We know they weren't eating the human. Yeah. Because they were burying them and then using their. I mean, they did use their bones and stuff, but. But like as accessories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which I think would be 
I, I think that might be a Palomayombe thing. Well, maybe like a little, some of it, but they wouldn't murder them in order to create those things. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. yeah. So when they discovered the site of El Padrino's ritual killings, the police burned the ritual shed to the ground, and a curandero, I mentioned earlier, cleansed the space and cast white powder on the ashes. Two weeks later, the Federales surrounded an apartment building in Mexico City where El Padrino was hiding with two friends and also the witch, Sara Aldretti. As police closed in, Constanzo persuaded El Dubi to murder him and his close companion, Martin Quintana Rodriguez. Garcia reports in the Rolling Stone. When the Federales burst into the apartment a few moments later, they found black candles, two swords, and a skull made of white wax, and a blindfolded doll holding another doll. Constanzo and Quintiana were found slumped together in a small closet, their bodies riddled with bullets. El Dubi, Arduit, and three other members of the occult were arrested on charges of homicide, criminal association, wounding a police agent, and damage to property. They had swords and a skull made of wax and a blindfolded doll holding another doll. Oh, that's so creepy. Uh, what? Don't with that. Do not with a doll holding another doll. What is that? <laughs> yeah, so that was the scene in the apartment. Uh-uh. Um, but the story of El Padrino does not end there. On the 9th of May, the New York Times reported via Reuters that his death may have been faked. DEA agent Armando Ramirez was quoted as saying, we wouldn't put it past them to kill two other people and substitute them. They were shot up pretty bad in the face. I think there is a twist in this thing. While Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo was practicing a particularly bleak form of Palo Mayambe rather than Satanism, the clear connections to black magic in order to achieve nefarious ends fed the satanic panic. Geraldo Rivera aired an episode on his talk show uh, on the events surrounding the scare, calling it Drugs, Death, and the Devil, colon, South of the Border. Geraldo Rivera just <laughs> loved the satanic panic. He made his fortune on this. Oh, I forgot what that that's dick. what this whole thing was about for satanic a little panic? bit. Yeah, I yeah, forgot I that's where that. this was going. I was so deep in what we were talking about. Yeah. It's a good story. But yeah, the Matamoros cult is was like, I mean, they were a real satanic panic cult, right? Yeah. Uh, for the most part, these didn't exist. This is one of possibly one. There might, I mean, <laughs> Son of Sam made this claim, right, Olivia? You and I were just talking about this the other day. Son of Sam made false claims. You want to get into yeah. that for a quick second? Well, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I, you don't, you don't claim to be an expert. I know, yeah. but I mean, basically this guy. So I think, cause we were kind of, we were going back and forth on like, if there was, I guess, a, a, a cult or a cult connection there but i mean he made claims i think later that like oh these killings were also i think part of like a he's part of like some kind of satanic group but then he like backed out of that later because he like did that all the time he would like say shit like his whole like the dog thing he like backed out of that i don't know but if you want to believe the satanic conspiracy, right. then you're going to latch on to that one time when he He's, said... He sent, like, letters, I think, into the police about it or something, because that was his, you know, fetish. What's his name? Berkowitz? Is that his name? David Berkowitz, yeah. Berkowitz, yeah. All right, speaking of serial killers, uh, I'm going to change the topics now. Uh, so that's all I've got on the Matamoros cult, and we're actually going to give you two murderers for the price of one today. Oh, two a deal. Murder- a steal. Two murder conspiracies. A steal. <laughs> a steal of a deal. <laughs> We're going to talk about Henry Lee Lucas and Otis oh, Toole now. 
Oh, oh God. I know about Lucas a little bit, at least. Yeah, both guys are kind of gross. Who and was the second guy? didn't murder anyone. Mm. Yeah, so the conversation about Son of Sam, I think, is, is kind of perfect here. Because while that guy definitely murdered people, he falsely attributed it to Satanism. In this case, we see people who maybe didn't even murder anybody, but were accused of being Satanic murderers. Mm. <laughs> so well, let's, let's root in here. So, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool. Um, this is probably the most fantastic story in our two-episode Satanic series. Uh, and it begins, as often things do in Satanic Panic conversations, with a hint of conspiracy. The Texas Monthly article makes reference to a curiously drawn map made by serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, identifying the location of each of the bodies around the Matamoros cult's shed. You got me? So Henry Lee Lucas is tied up with the Matamoros cult. He's in police custody, and he draws this map identifying the location of bodies around their shed. Even though there's no record of Lucas ever having contact with any of the cult's members, and the map was created two whole years before many of the bodies were even buried at Matamoros. It's very strange what? that he would know where these bodies are. Yeah. It is weird. I guess he's a drifter, but like, still weird. It's, we would have to call it like a psychic map because the bodies weren't there yet. Yeah, right. that's even weirder. The strange story of the mysterious map begins when 46-year-old Henry Lee Lucas was arrested for possession of a firearm in Texas in 1983. So today's episode is brought to you by the great state of Texas. Woo! Yeah. He <laughs> got arrested for having a firearm in Texas? Yeah, right? Like, yeah. how do you do that? <laughs> is that even... Well, I, didn't know that I guess was this was back, like, what year was this, like... He was also a felon, so he probably, you know, oh. there was extenuating circumstances there. Okay. Mm. It was 1983. I'll buy it. Uh, so once he was in police custody, he began making a bizarre confession. He claimed to be a member of a secret satanic murder cult along with his sometime lover and fellow serial killer, Otis Toole. Toole and Lucas had met while waiting for food at City Mission in Jacksonville, Florida in 1976. Lucas moved into Toole's home in Springfield, where they began taking trips together. Toole's nephew and niece, Frank and Frida, who was known as Becky, their last name was Powell, they moved in with them. She, she Lu- had three, two names? She, uh, her name was yes. Frida, but she went by Becky? Yeah, like if you wanted to picture it, you would write it out, Frida, and then in quotations, Becky Powell. Okay. Where'd she like get Becky from? Uh... That's not part of my story today, Olivia. (laughs) All right. That's all I need to hear. Um, eh, Let's get creepy now. Lucas began having sex with Becky. Oh. When she was only 12 years old. Oh, And she joined her uncle and Lucas on some of their trips in, around, and out of the state. Finally, in 1982, there was some threat of Becky being brought into foster care, and she and Lucas took off on a cross-country trip, leaving Toole uh, embittered at having been excluded. So she was Toole's niece, uh, but Lucas and her have this relationship, and and they cut out. Uh, She's not 12 anymore. She's, I guess, in her her mid-teens at this point. Um, but I'm sure she's got like some kind of Stockholm syndrome sort Still of Still some grooming yeah. going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With her, yeah. He's her abuser for sure. No doubt about that. Uh, but she's definitely, I mean, I, I don't know. That's Stockholm syndrome, maybe that's not the right term, but she is attached to him um, because she's been manipulated by him. I think, I thought I like remember like 
either reading or hearing that she like kind of had a low IQ maybe too. Is that, is that part of it? I don't know that, if you read yeah, that. Yeah, that. that is part of the story for sure. Okay, yeah. Uh, so while on that trip, Henry Lee Lucas confessed to killing the 15-year-old Powell, Becky Powell. He, so he confessed to having killed her while they were on the trip and claimed that he also killed an 82-year-old woman named Kate Rich, uh, who Becky and Lucas um, had paid, had been paid to look after. So Kate, so oh. these two were wandering the, you know, country, the southern part of the country, and they happen across this old woman, and she's going to pay them to sort of like be, you know, to give her some caretaking, and then they murder her, and then he murders Becky. So Rich's family had fired Lucas for failing to do his job and drawing checks on Rich's account. According to Lucas, Powell had grown homesick for Florida and wanted to leave, Becky that is. Initially, Lucas relented, and they started on their way back from Texas to Florida. But he didn't want to take her back, fearing that he would lose her if they got back home. They fought, and he struck her in the chest with a meat cleaver, killing her quickly. Jesus. Wait, But wait, there's more. Mm. Okay. He dismembered her body, Mm. stuffed it in a pillowcase, and buried it in a field in Denton, Texas, just north of Dallas. Now, Savannah, what do you want to say? I just think it, like, you said that he was afraid of losing her, so then he just murders her instead. It's so, it's so crazy. It just doesn't make any sense. I'm pretty sure, oh, sorry. Well, Olivia, isn't this part of the psychosis of a serial killer? There's a notion of possession that comes with killing. Yeah, well, I think the way he, like, worded it, too, was that, yeah, they, like, it was, like, an argument that kind of, like, got out of hand on his, like, I guess, because he's, you know, him. But then he said, I think, in, like, later, he was like, that's the only... He actually felt remorse for that, like, murder. Out of oh, all so in of his... his case, he was... It was accidental, yeah. I think he, like, yeah. He said that he felt, like, the most remorse towards her, yeah. but... So, not that so that sort helps, of accidental. but... Yeah. Of but still... Yeah, yeah no, it's... Murder. <laughs> not excusable, yeah. <laughs> not letting him off the hook here. No. <laughs> Uh, so then he went back to old Mrs. Rich to ask for her help in finding Becky after he had murdered her. Uh, mm. And he he knew Becky was dead, and he brought a knife along for the ride. Drunk, he murdered Rich for no discernible reason and then stuffed her body in a drain pipe. After police questioned him about Rich's disappearance, he went back and retrieved the body from the drain pipe and incinerated it in a stove. So he didn't get caught at this point. But then he proceeded to confess to over 200 additional murders after he had been caught on the firearm possession, not any of these things. Wow, okay. 200 additional murders. Do we think it's humanly possible to murder 200 people? Um, I would say yes, but I also highly doubt it. <laughs> I'm going to help your idea there, Savannah. You, you are right to highly doubt it. Yeah. Because... <laughs> In addition to this insanely large number of murders is the fact that um, police may have allowed Lucas to read case files and inadvertently gave him the opportunity to invent a series of false confessions based on what he read in those case files. We love the police in the 80s. We just love it. (laughs) They are are very very creative policing in the 80s. Everyone has their shit together. They're all working together. It's great. The reason uh, that Lucas fabricated all these confessions was that it gave him preferential treatment while he was in prison. The more he confessed, the better food and accommodations he received. Later, he would claim that he was only responsible for the death of his mother, who he'd stabbed in the neck when he was 24. 
although he claimed all he could remember was hitting her and causing a heart attack. That's okay. So right. let's talk about mommy for a second, shall we? As Wait, we have he, to with all killers. Real, real quick. He took yeah. back all 200 of his murders and was like, never mind, yes. I just killed my mom. They always including, do. Including Becky and uh, Mrs. Rich. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so mommy dearest. Her name was Viola Lucas, and she was, by Lucas's account, should we choose to believe him, which is difficult because he did confess to 200 murders that he then recanted, uh, she was a less than ideal mother. She was a part-time prostitute who lived with Lucas, his brother, and her pimp, who was a double amputee who Lucas called his stepfather in a dirt floor cabin in rural Virginia. Lucas and his brother sold moonshine and were often forced to watch as their mother performed sex acts with her customers. Lucas claimed that she dressed him up like a girl and refused to allow her son to express emotion. She was an abusive alcoholic and smashed a two-by-four over his head when he was between the ages of five and ten, causing serious injury to his brain. He's just, like, an... checking off all the criteria. Yeah, yeah this just... brain injury, Olivia, this is common, right, for serial killers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the, there's, like, the, the cocktail. They say, like, the top three things, and that's, like, one of them is you have to have a head injury. And then mommy issues. Yeah. And then I think it's like killing animals is the other Uh, one. I see. I think. In an unrelated accident, uh, Lucas suffered a knife wound to his face that injured his eye, and he went through the rest of his life with a glass eye. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, that's intense. We start to feel a little bad for him if we want to buy all this um, backstory. Lucas also claimed that his mother's lovers got him involved in bestiality and necrophilia. Mm, Here we go, Olivia. Yeah, here we are. Killing sheep and dogs and having sex with their corpses. Yep, that that checks it off. I'll go you one better than murdering animals. (laughs) Yep, you just double checked. (laughs) He said his first murder took place when he was 14 and he killed a girl to have sex with her lifeless body. Mm, Okay. After his mother's murder in 1960, he was sent to prison, but several suicide attempts persuaded the authorities to transfer him to a psychiatric facility for the next five years. They released him because of overcrowding, because, you know, Hmm. he seems okay now. You know, (laughs) he's probably going to be fine. Oh, no. Uh, And according to Lucas's admittedly dubious narrative, he claims to have immediately gone out, killed a woman, and left her on the doorstep of the prison. Left her on the doorstep of the prison. (laughs) Wild. So I don't know if that's, that seems like that probably isn't true. But it, it, a lot of his story just seems like a thumb in the eye of the authorities. You want to let me out of prison? Fine, I'll kill somebody and put them on your doorstep. Seems like that would be documented somewhere, but... Yeah, I was just thinking yeah, it's, that. It's a f- fantasy of sticking his thumb in the eye. Hmm. Let's quote from Lucas directly, citing an interview that D Magazine did with him in 1985. I told the warden, the psychologist, everybody... When they come in and put me on parole, I said, I'm not ready to go. I'm not going. They said, you're going if we have to throw you out. They threw me out of the prison because it was too crowded. So I said, I'll leave you a present on the doorstep on the way out. And I did it. The same day, down the road a bit. But they never proved it. Now we've got to catch up with Otis Toole. Remember Otis? Lucas's sometime partner. Yep. Uh, When you say partner, you don't mean lover right no i do yeah. oh okay never mind i do it was I like a, little a weird friendship lover partner i don't know they had a weird relationship got you tool i think was homosexual and lucas was bisexual is my take and then he ran yeah. away with his niece 
Hey, yep. Yeah. Okay. Very screwy. So let's get back to Otis, Otis Tool. Um, we last heard that Lucas was leaving Tool behind in Florida before murdering Becky T- Powell on his cross-country trip. Tool, like Lucas, had killed since their first meeting in Jacksonville. He'd intentionally set fire to a boarding house in 1982, murdering 64-year-old George Nicholas Sonnenberg. After confessing to the murder of Becky Powell and Kate Rich, Lucas wrote to Tool for help remembering the various murders they'd committed together. <laughs> oh, wow. Murder pen pals. Brought them back together. Nothing like trying to remember murders to bring two people back together. In a macabre phone call, the two, mindful of their law enforcement audience who were listening in on the call, claimed that they'd practiced cannibalism on their myriad victims. But this was only the beginning of their sordid and bizarre confession. Lucas said that he had been indoctrinated into a secret satanic murder cult called the Hand of Death while he was in Florida, and that he had brought Tool into the organization. The pair claimed that the cult had trained them in a paramilitary camp in the Florida Everglades. They had been trained to abduct, to kill, and to commit arson, which they all which they went on to do all of those things. Lucas then served as a contract killer performing political hits. He was also a child abductor until his arrest. He said that the children he abducted were taken over the border to a ranch in Mexico near Juarez. The cult operated out of Texas and the Mexican ranch, trafficking in children and drugs. That should sound a little bit familiar. The killing itself is like, you say, you're walking down the road. Half of me will go this way, and the other half goes that way. The right-hand side didn't know what the left-hand side was going to do. The fact that the Matamoros cult leader, Constanzo El Padrino, uh, had a connection to Florida through his mother and had grown up outside Miami, and that Lucas claimed to have been trained in Florida and was subsequently arrested in Texas fires the imagination do we think it's possible that these guys met i'm just still caught on there being a cult from florida for some reason that just <laughs> seems like such a you don't think there's cults in florida no florida cults i'm sure there it's are a great but place to have one it's warm year-round like you don't have to worry about it getting too cold in your compound or anything like that like it's perfect you just have to you watch have out a for alligators a, a lot of oranges i don't <laughs> Have your have a bikini cult. Everyone's dressed in their bathing suits and learning arson techniques. In Going the, to Disney Everglades. World. I was about to say Disney is its own cult. I think. Hmm. What? Right, you're kind of right. Yeah. <laughs> you may actually be right. <laughs> and I'm That's for another episode, though. Uh, okay, so Lucas's claims to be tied to a ranch. Okay, so anyway, real quick though, I, I do think it's possible that the Matamoros cult was connected to Lucas, but there's just no evidence to be to be, you know, put a finer yeah. point on this. So Lucas's claims to be tied to a ranch operating just over the border with Mexico suggests a possible connection between Lucas and the Matamoros cult. This may help to make sense of the weirdly accurate map of buried bodies that Lucas had drawn in 1987, two years before the bodies were discovered. These connections give the impression that El Padrino and Sarah Aldretti were somehow tied into the Hand of Death murder cult and that Lucas had some role in the Matamoros murders, or at least knowledge of what happened there if he didn't actually help commit them. But we've got to recall that Mark Kilroy, along with many of the Matamoros cult's victims, would have been killed and buried after 1987. So the burial would have had to have been carefully orchestrated well in advance 
with the cult planning the location of the shed and the bodies years before any of the murders took place, and then, of course, sharing it with Lucas, so Lucas had the information. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a lot of... It's the only way he would know. Like, Another possibility... Yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking, like, I don't think when you premeditate murder, you don't... I don't know if you do it that far in advance and know exactly where you're going to bury them. It's like, premeditated you know, things, burial, yeah. Things go wrong sometimes, and you gotta put them in other places. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what's so specific about these places that Henry Lee Lucas was like, yeah, they're going to bury it right there. I don't know. That just doesn't make sense. My other alternative here is that the Matamoros cult could have followed some sort of ritual plan regularly perpetrated by members of the cult. In other words, bodies are always buried in a particular pattern around the sacrificial site, no matter whether it's in Mexico, Texas, Florida, or anywhere in the world. That seems more likely. Yeah. Yeah. If it's for not sure. just, you know, random luck on Lucas's part. All along the way, through Lucas's and Tool's wild confessions, there were doubts about their authenticity. Some law enforcement, including the Texas Rangers, who had created a whole Henry Lee Lucas task force. Imagine the taxpayer money going into this. <laughs> to two, this 200 false confessions. They fully committed themselves to the idea that these two drifters had murdered hundreds of people and happily closed case after case after case. But... Hugh Ainsworth of the Dallas Times-Herald calculated that Lucas would have had to drive 11,000 miles in his 13-year-old car over the course of a month to commit all of the crimes he had confessed to. Okay, I'm glad you're saying this, because I was just thinking that just doesn't seem like he's a drifter. He's traveling 24-7. I don't... Yeah. And anyone who drives a 13-year-old car probably... (laughs) I, I have driven old cars, right? I always drive a car into the ground. I think you guys do too, don't you? <laughs> Livia, you too. Me? I have a you drive? 2018. Well, you? Oh, wow. Look at you, fancy pants. <laughs> well, I don't... <laughs> uh, sorry. It's a Kia. It's not like, you know. You have driven old cars, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, not like that old. Like a. 13? <laughs> I think it was like a 2010, maybe. It would be a 2005 right now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, you don't want to be driving that around the Texas desert is what I'm trying to say. Right, I get your point, yeah. 11,000 miles. So Lucas confessed to murdering a police officer who had committed suicide, for example. How did also he a man even... in Delaware who someone else had confessed to murdering. Get out of what? Delaware. <laughs> Sorry. What the yeah. hell? Yeah, yeah he's, he's up in the Delmarva area now. Periodically, Lucas would recant his confessions and then reconfess and recant over and over. In one of his reconfessions on a radio interview, he claimed that he had to recant because the hand of death would have killed him otherwise, the cult he was a member of. But These if he already aside, said it, I feel like... Too late now. That's <laughs> yeah. in motion, right? Like he <laughs> Should have killed him by now. He oh confessed to 200 God. murders. I don't think you can take it back. and They really got to chase this man down. 200 murders in. Okay. When are they going to get him? <laughs> yeah. How many is too many? Mm-hmm. If he does one more, just one more, we are taking him out. Right. These things aside, by all accounts, Lucas had an unusual talent for locating bodies. He knew where bodies had been buried, even though his confessions were too much to be believed. This points back to the strange coincidence of his map and the Matamoros cult victims. He just has this sixth sense for where bodies are buried. Lucas's lawyer, Tom Wicklock, had to say this uh, about his many confessions. I don't believe he has committed all the crimes they say he has. Not 150. I have my doubts he killed a hundred, 
Certainly there's a temptation for law enforcement agencies to clear up their books this way. I'm getting too many calls from agencies who have a body and want somebody to blame it on. And the public defender's office in Stewart, Florida, wondered whether Toole was intelligent enough to commit all of his alleged crimes and get away with them. They viewed his confession as a means to get publicity. Toole's most famous confession was the murder of Adam Walsh, son of John Walsh, host of America's Most Wanted, one of the most famous uh, missing children cases uh, in the country. On July the 27th, 1981, Adam disappeared from a shopping mall in Hollywood, Florida. Six weeks later, his head was found in a canal ditch in Vero Beach along the Florida Turnpike. Oh, God. John Walsh. Yeah. Horrifying event. Yeah. John Walsh earned his place in American popular culture as a result of his son's widely publicized murder and his subsequent success getting a law passed to compel the FBI to keep a detailed database about the missing about missing children, which was a great thing. Coincidentally, Adam had, well, not the death or any of that. I mean, the database. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Coincidentally, Adam had been decapitated with a machete, much like Mark Kilroy. But I'm going to emphasize coincidentally, I don't really see any meaningful connection there. Toole's biography contains eerie echoes of his partner in confession, Henry Lucas. He claims his mother dressed him up as a girl when he was young and called him Susan. He also claims to have committed his first murder as an adolescent, running over a traveling salesman with his own car after the man had picked him up for sex and brought him out to the woods. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. Right. Both guys are telling very similar stories, which may, may mean that they've inspired each other, right? Yeah. Both their first murders are sort of like sex involved. With Lucas, it's with a girl. With um, Tool, it's with a man. Both of them are dressed, dressed as a girl by their mothers. However, unlike Lucas, Tool claims to have had an early connection to Satanism. While his mother was a fundamentalist Christian, his grandmother, so he said, was an avowed Satanist, which, you know, chronologically doesn't make sense. Anton LaVey is not going to. Can't have Satanism um, before the Church of Satan. Uh, He said his grandmother had called him the devil's child and that he'd watched her dig up body parts in a graveyard to conduct demonic rituals. So I guess what he really means by Satanist is some sort of like witch or what we would call a black kind of witch. Yeah, She's digging up bodies. I don't know if that (laughs) makes you a witch as much as it makes you. I don't mean witch like Wiccan witch. I mean witch like witch trial witch, inverting Christian ritual and desecrating things. So Satanism lurks around every corner in both Lucas and Toole's confessions, but is it really there? In the final twist for today's episode, the Satanic conspiracy extends up from, the, from society's dark underbelly all the way to the White House. Get ready for this. Lucas was sentenced to death in Texas, and Toole was sentenced in Florida. Many of our listeners may recognize Texas and Florida as the two most execution-happy states in the Union. Woo! But here's where things get weird. <laughs> <They're> sorry. <laughs> Hooray, execution. Hot take. Oh, sorry. That's a hot take for sure. But uh, their sentences were commuted from death to life in prison by two famous brothers. Lucas's sentence was commuted by then-governor and soon-to-be president George W. Bush. Oh, here we go. And Toole's sentence was commuted by George's brother, everybody together now, exclamation point, Jeb. Jeb did something? Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> Jeb did that. Wow. Jeb commuted that murderer's sentence. Great. He, he did that one thing. 
neither George W. nor Jeb were known for their squeamishness or leniency in the face of executions. Let's not forget that we owe the horrors of Guantanamo Bay to the Bush administration. Why then would they issue clemency to these two very guilty murderers, even if they were only guilty of a very tiny percentage of the murders they confessed to? Are they also in the cult? Oh, this gets so weird. Wait, 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 wait. Any evidence of a nationwide satanic murder cult is purely circumstantial, and any connection to the Bush family implied by their unlikely pardons is even more difficult to prove. However, there's more to this particular connection than just these unlikely pardons. There is the theory that Barbara Bush, mother of George W. and Jeb, and wife to George H.W. Bush, is in fact the child of none other than Alistair Crowley. Lucky. Lucky Whoa, lucky Babs. Okay. <laughs> lucky Babs. That's, Those of you who, um, that's a what? lot. That's it, a lot you, to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate this to you <laughs> uh, with a lot of nonsense. So again, we're not endorsing this conspiracy. It's just pretty wildly fascinating. Yeah. Those of you who, are, who have listened to our full series will readily see the connections between Crowley's theories and the concept, if not the practice, of black magic that we've described to, today. Crowley did not do human sacrifices, but he did think of bodily fluids as a particularly powerful conduit for occult magic, and he made the self the center of occult practice. It's all about me, protecting me. The Matamoros cult, very selfish. (laughs) Clearly Henry Lee Lucas and Toole, very self-centered people. Uh, So... But not that Crowley was... Yeah, Crowley was pretty selfish, too, wasn't he? Olivia, can we say that? that yeah, okay? no, 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 no. You can totally okay. say that. I was about to say, v- wasn't that his guy. whole thing? Like, yeah. yeah. His narcissism was <laughs> so great that we're still talking about him today. He couldn't... Exactly. He wouldn't be where he was if it wasn't for... <laughs> right. Okay, so, but how do, we, how do we make the connection with Barbara Bush? I'm going to make this as short as possible. Crowley was staying in Paris in the 1930s as a guest of Israel Regardie. Crowley had designed a ritual involving sexual exhaustion, the draining of the magician over and over again until his consciousness left his body, allowing the magician to communicate directly with divine powers. The story goes, and I have not been able to corroborate it, so Hmm. this only merits recognition as an interesting rumor, not a carefully analyzed theory. Hearsay. Yeah, hearsay. It's hearsay. Story goes that Pauline Pierce had temporarily separated from her husband, Marvin Pierce, the powerful editor of McCall's, and came to Paris for a few months. While in Paris, she became involved with Crowley's circle, helping to drain Crowley the magician of his sexual fluids and came back to her husband, pregnant with her third child. This child was Barbara Pierce, the woman who would go on to marry George H.W. Bush, give birth to George W. and Jeb, and her sons would go on to pardon two avowed members of the Satanic Hand of Death cult. Mic drop. Wow, that's some foresight. Like, wow, you you have to have this baby just so that your baby's baby can pardon these two dudes. Yeah, like, wow, you know, they're just so much smarter than the rest of us. Us sheep, I mean. We are not a conspiracy podcast by nature, uh, and this has taken us far off the beaten trail. So to right our wagon wheels before we close things up for the day, we've got to reflect critically for just a moment on Lucas's mental state in truth. Lucas doesn't make the best witness to such a conspiracy. His difficult childhood and potential brain damage establish reasonable grounds for dissociative identity disorder and plenty of cause for him to imagine a vast satanic murder cult. I've got problems, but as far as being crazy, (laughs) I couldn't tell you. I can't say whether I'm crazy or whether I'm not crazy. I don't think that's something anybody can do, really. Sometimes I hear stuff when there's nothing around. 
I've heard my name called and there ain't been nobody with me. We have to accept a few things about Lucas and to some extent Tool. These men were probably much smarter than they were ever given credit for. In closing so many cases, the Texas Rangers believed they were getting over on these two no-account drifters. But we have to remember that these men, both convicted of murder and execution, remember that, had almost nothing to lose. Their confessions not only kept them alive, but kept them entertained, rather than rotting in their jail cells, and even earned them preferential treatment. They were also profoundly disturbed, and capable of committing horrible, remorseless acts against other human beings. They were killers, but they were also storytellers. They definitely killed people, in my opinion, uh, but they definitely did not kill 200 people. But do they provide any evidence of a satanic criminal conspiracy? There are strange coincidences. The machete decapitation and the death of Adam Walsh and Mark Kilroy, for example, and the fact that both stories connect Florida and Texas, with Florida being a kind of training ground and Texas a hunting ground. Lucas's claims to have worked with a Mexican gang outside of Juarez could have been culled from his exposure to case files or to the underground culture of South Texas. Lucas had unusual levels of access while under Ranger custody. By some accounts, he was almost never handcuffed and rarely locked in his cell, and even had the security codes to certain doors, all because what? of his special role. Yeah, right? <laughs> wow. Because he had a very special role in the Henry Lee Lucas task force, uh, Savannah, because he was Henry Lee Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> this he's gave him the ample. Yeah, he's the leader. He's the boss. He's just the criminal boss. This gave him ample opportunity to glean information that he could then translate into his various confessions, including those related to Mexican crime lords. His ability to create an accurate map of the location of the Matamoros bodies is more mysterious and perhaps the strongest evidence that there was some sort of shared occult source, if not a full-blown conspiracy organization connecting the two. But this also could have been a kind of folkloric tradition traded among select circles of Florida's criminal element that somehow entered both Lucas and Constanzo's experience. Let me get to a sort of wrap-up on black magic generally here now. Black magic as a self-centered, power-oriented, and intentionally antisocial practice certainly inspired the murders committed by the Matamoros cult and the confessions, if not the crimes, of Lucas and Toole. This was a relatively new phenomenon unique to the 1980s and 1990s, the golden age of serialized horror films starting in the late 1970s with The Exorcist and The Shining, and continuing with Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Child's Play, Gremlins, on and on. Many fantastic quasi-occultist tales of demonic forces stalking the innocent. Black magic was a place the criminally disturbed could turn to lend drama and meaning to their unsettled lives. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether the Bushes are involved in a satanic conspiracy that includes a series of criminal gangs. The conspiracy theory exists, as most do, because of our knowledge that people in power are morally compromised by virtue of their having sought after power. Satanism is an ideal trope to make sense of how these people are compromised because whether the message comes from a raving podcaster obsessed with MKUltra or Michael Aquino, the meaning of Satanism doesn't fundamentally change. Satanism puts the individual first, in contrast to other traditions which attempt to displace the self as the center of our own universe. Government, pop musicians, and Hollywood actors are accused of Satanism because they are, by nature, deeply self-centered people, which often requires that they overlook and even hurt others in their quest for fame and power. 
Is a politician who orders a military action or cuts funding for disaster relief very different from El Padrino commanding the Hernandez gang to kill for their collective protection? How thin is the line between a celebrity who invests all their time and energy into gaining and maintaining the attention of as many people as possible and a serial killer who dreams of becoming notorious and tells wild tales to win headlines? Our study of black magic brings home an important theme of the kind of spiritual path I encourage for my students and alchemical actors. As the ancient Taoist masters taught, we must constantly seek balance. Our lives are a ceaseless effort to balance selflessness and selfishness. We must love others, and we must love ourselves, with neither project overwhelming or undermining the other. We can love others so much that we neglect our own health and safety, like a young mother who crashes her car because she is not sleeping enough looking after her baby. We can also love ourselves so much that we forget to help others in need, babysitting so that that young mother can take a nap. We can even suck others into our orbit so that they become means to our ends rather than ends in themselves. Lucas killed Becky Powell when she wouldn't be what he wanted anymore, and asserted herself. Elio Hernandez Rivera killed Mark Kilroy to feed his own sense of invincibility. When we ask others to sacrifice themselves for our fame and our power, how different are we? All right, Olivia, bring us home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Uh, I want to thank Savannah for joining us on the mic. Oh, goodbye. Woo! Sister of the 84th degree and Olivia, as is customary. Goodbye. And all of our voice actors today, we'll catch you next time here on Occult Confessions. Woo!